and welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is a slightly special episode, uh, number 707. We're recording this on October the 12th. This is Richard Jarrett as normal and with me as always is Jim McDowell over in the States. Jim, hi, how you doing? Pretty good, Rich. Uh, we've hit the first of the Boeing aircraft numbers for the podcast. <laughs> yes. So as as the space nerd slash aviation nerd that I am, I, I enjoy that. But uh, yeah, it's just crazy right now. Everything is happening. There's all the great racing and MotoGP, World Superbike, Formula One, which was in Suzuka, which is a great race. Got hockey starting, still have soccer going on here, football. And uh, yeah, it's just, and, and there's a job in there somewhere too, plus the show. So Crazy days. Just to mess up the schedule, you've got a job to hold down as well. <laughs> in amongst yeah, the you know, sport. if it wasn't for this job, I'd, it'd be great. You know, yeah, well, there's perfect. always the lottery to, to dream about, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> That's true. And we've spoken about this before. If we, either of us ever win the lottery, we're definitely starting a motorcycle racing team. Very much so, yes. That is exactly what we're going to do. So, everybody, this is a hopefully a relatively short infill show because we're very excited, obviously, about Phillip Island, MotoGP, Moto2 and Moto3 this coming weekend. So we just want to have a quick talk about that. And there's been a few items of news that we want to crack into. And well, related to the news, a couple of things that we can't ignore, which we just need to touch on as well. Before we get into that, just a quick shout out. Uh, over the course of the last week or so, we've had uh, contributions in from Keith Kovach and Nick Saban, regular contributors to the pod. So guys, thank you very much. Always uh, highly appreciated. And of course, to all of our friends on Patreon. Another little bit of news, Jim, which hopefully people will have started to see because we're trying to get a bit more active with social media, kind of shouting out and making people aware of what's going on a little bit. We have just launched very much with um, Len Padilla, who's always there in the background, keeping things running and helping us out with new endeavours. So we've just launched a little blog uh, kind of system, let's call it, on, which is now showing on the Motopod website. So if you go to the normal location motorpodcast.com uh, up on the top right hand side you'll see there's a, a big blue blog link appeared now so if you link into that you'll start to pick up a little bit of written stuff that i am quite keen to do I, i've always kind of regretted the fact that i didn't go into sports journalism gym so uh, this is my <laughs> sort of vicariously living that uh, that alter ego uh, i guess you might have a few things you want to scribe down from time to time as issues and interesting topics come up people can read that and react that'll be great it kind of leads into the first bit of news, Jim. I'm not necessarily going to do this in massively kind of logical order, but uh, last week when we recorded, we touched on the fact that in British Superbikes, Chrissy Rouse, fellow podcaster, had quite a nasty accident at Donington Park in the third and final race of the weekend. Well, very sadly, as most people will, I'm sure, have read or heard on October the 6th, which was last Thursday, uh, the news emerged that he sadly passed away as a result of those injuries i think it was kind of news that we feared was likely to come jim uh it's the dark side of the sport it happens from time to time thankfully it's relatively infrequent these days huge advances in safety equipment that the riders wear trackside in terms of barriers and so on but there are always going to be these situations where things just go wrong you know and this was one of those cases it's not the first that we have to touch on tonight unfortunately but um i wrote a piece just to kind of kick off the blog it's a slightly maudling way to start it i think but i felt so strongly that it was necessary to almost a exercise in catharsis i suppose in a way if that's the right way to phrase it to just 
just kind of get a few of the things that were running around in my mind down in written form. So I said to Len, hey, let's start a blog. Let's start off with a tribute piece to Chrissy. It's obviously we want to talk about more bright notes than that in the future, but it certainly helped me to get a few feelings out. And hopefully a few people have managed to see it, or if not, they can go and have a look at it. But uh, Jim, have you anything to add? I mean, I know BSB is not necessarily a major touch point for you, but were you aware of Chrissy and the things that he was doing outside of racing? I wasn't aware of what he was doing outside of racing. I knew the name from perusing YouTube, you know, highlights of races from it. I've, I've heard the name mm-hmm. and whatnot. It's a terrible, terrible shame. From what I've seen, the outpouring from the BSB community has been incredible. Yeah. Chrissy was obviously loved and, and, and adored by many a fan in the paddock everywhere. So I, I don't think anybody that I've seen in some of the readings has had any bad word to say about the man at all. But it, it does beg the question. You mentioned infrequently. I I hesitate to be this person, but I'm beginning to think that this is becoming all too frequent. It just, there's too many of these things are happening. Again, and it's one of these things where I forget what there's some psychological term that's associated to this, but let's say that you decide that you want to buy a red for lack of anything better, red Corvette. Uh-huh. Well, you don't really notice all the Corvettes on the road until you're driving a Corvette. You're like, wow, there's a Corvette, there's a Corvette. There's a... It's sort of maybe because of the advent of social media and this instantaneous gratification that you can get by looking for results or watching racing from your phone wherever you are on this planet that you now are more aware of all of the people who have succumbed to some form of injury via racing. There was you know, the kids that were in uh, the CEV that happened. The Moto three rider in Magello, mm-hmm. what a year ago, right? Yep. De Pasquier, yeah. De pa- yeah, Pasquier, yeah. I mean, you're so much of it now. It seems my formative years of it was always in the '80s. It was always in a cycle newspaper that came in the mail that was always a week behind because of the you know having to compile all the data, and there just was never that much. It was it wasn't talked about. It just didn't happen. And if it did, it was like super infrequent or at least felt that way. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you think of mo- I think like mostly through the 80s and the first part of the 90s, off the top of my head, I can't come up with someone. I'm sure that there were someone who died in the MotoGP paddock, let's call it. Now, there could have been smaller bikes, but again, that information was never really readily available to us here in the U.S., but the big names never really had a problem. I mean, it was only once we got to the 90s and we were at Laguna Seca and we had Kevin McGee doing the burnout on the Lucky Strike Yamaha, I think, Mm -hmm. and then he was hit by Bubba Schobert, and it was like, then it sort of started to reappear again, and it just seems as though now it's just, it is not common, but it's becoming far too much of an occurrence for what we want to see. Yeah. It could be cyclical. I, I don't, it could be rules. It could be just the social media aspect of it. I'm not sure why it's brought to our attention, probably much more than what it was previously. It just seems, it's just so sad. It's just, it's the downer of the sport. It's the part that we all hate. We love the sport. I think everyone loves the sport. It's it's, it's a sport that, that is more family than you can possibly imagine unless you've been in a paddock and you've seen how it is, especially I'll say in club amateur racing the real grassroots portion of it you'll you'll never meet a person i mean even the trips that we've taken to watch racing to texas to barber to pittsburgh you don't meet nicer people than who's there at the campground with you yeah they're to do racing it's just they're incredibly giving people who will do anything off the shirt off their back to help you or do anything for you and it's just so so sad that this has to continue i really have no more words than that 
I mean, my observation on this, and we don't want to be too morose, but equally it would be wrong not to address some of the issues that this is throwing up. And obviously it's going to lead on to another piece of downer news following hot on the heels of this. But I I suppose the thing with Chrissy is that it is relatively unusual these days, thankfully, for these kinds of accidents to happen in the big bike classes. I think the trend that we've seen, as you say, with Jason DePasquier last year, we also had uh, Dean Bertavignales in Supersport 300 last year and Hugo Milan, who was in the European Talent Cup, which is the Moto3 European Cup, let's call it is this propensity for the way the rules have gone to improve the show in terms of close racing, but that has tended to generate a lot of pack racing. And so if you go down, you are surrounded by a lot of other bikes. And therefore, the one accident that seems almost impossible to not legislate your way out of, but kind of develop from a safety point of view your way out of, is that scenario where, unfortunately, a rider gets struck by a following or errant motorcycle. But normally, it's another rider who just cannot avoid what's in front of of them so the majority of the accidents that we're seeing that have these kind of outcomes and, and other serious injuries as well in terms of broken legs and arms and stuff like that seems to be coming from the smaller classes on balance i would say statistically if somebody went away and did the analysis on this gym certainly over the course of the last five to ten years i think that would be borne out that it's the smaller bikes and so it does beg the question is it incumbent upon the governing bodies to it's almost a kind of um, what's the word it's a counterintuitive argument to say make the bikes more powerful so that they tend to separate more whereas these bikes are so close and we see this in moto three and we've seen some horrifying accidents and some horrifying near misses regularly over the course of the last few seasons which we have commented on haven't we where they're so closely bunched up and it's all about the toe it's all about staying as close as possible together and jinking around on the track to try and break the toe these are the sorts of things that cause accidents and cause pileups and particularly in the early phases of a race now in the case of Paul Chrissy Roust, he high-sided at the end of lap one. I think we talked about this briefly at the, on the last show. I mean, he was towards the back of the pack, it's true. But again, end of lap one, everybody's close together. So he kind of went down and just got hit by another bike. And so unfortunately, yeah, succumbed to those injuries. I mean, as you say, I cannot recall. And I think I this is kind of part of what I said in the blog piece that I wrote. I can't recall another accident and an outcome like this that has resulted in such a big outpouring of comment and grief and sadness and sort of disbelief I suppose really and because he was so well known certainly in Britain anyway because of the chase and the racing podcast that he did with his mate Dom you know had some really top line guests on there all the time and so he was reaching out to a very very large audience and so he had a a very high profile and was always a guy as you say Jim typical bike racer I mean just smiling always happy to have a chat stop had a brief chat with him myself at brands last year and kind of was trying to get him onto the pod but because he'd gone into bsb full-time this year and it was a very small team so he was having to do an awful lot of the generation of sponsorship money you know selling little spaces on uh, the wall in the pit for people to contribute to and all this kind of stuff he just didn't really have time at that point to get onto the show and obviously that's an opportunity missed that we'll never get back so anyway i mean that's that's nothing in the overall scheme of things but kind of moving on from that in uh, World Superbike, or, or specifically in Super well, Sport I... 300. Sorry, Jim. Yes, please. Just a question. And, yeah. and I'm sure that they do, but I want to ask anyway. Does BSB mandate that you need an airbag suit and things of that nature? Certainly all of the riders that I've ever seen have got airbag suits. Okay. I'm not making. I'm not trying to make a suggestion that this would save a life. That's not my point. I was just curious because it's one of those things that, as I see it, that sometimes 
smaller teams, especially very privateer type teams, do not necessarily have the money to afford the best of equipment. If you look at it from that standpoint, you take that angle, you can say that, hey, look, as a sanctioning body, we're going to mandate that you have this, which is a, a good safety device. I think we can all look at some of the crashes that's happened in MotoGP and World Superbike and know that that suit with the airbag technology has saved hundreds of collarbones and if not several lives. Yeah. You know, just, just from that standpoint. Yeah. So my curiosity was... And I'm not trying to suggest that it was or wasn't in any way. Please, people don't misunderstand. I'm just trying to say that a step to help is to mandate a, a level of safety. I mean, airbags have been around in Dionysi suits since 2002. So it is a very mature technology, although I would think that in roughly, what are we talking, almost 20 years of that technology, I know that you can buy a, a decent jacket slot riding suit for the road that even has that airbag in it is definitely at a much higher price point than say a regular leather jacket but yeah the technology is it's decreased enough that everyone should have access to it yeah and that that's just one of the ideas on you know to stop this help prevent these things in some way and i'm pretty sure he probably did yeah no to answer your question directly i don't know if it's a mandated requirement i'd be surprised if it wasn't but i will go away and i will try to find that out for sure however i mean the crux of the issue here is without getting too graphic about it it's the impact i was going to say i don't you know obviously in the fullness of time a coroner's report will come out and all this kind of stuff in with all of these crashes that's what happens and then there's sort of detail to be poured over but my kind of understanding of both of these accidents that we're, we're kind of talking about here although we haven't come on to the second one but they're effectively the same accident the rider goes down they're hit in the head effectively by the following or a following rider and bike and therefore it doesn't impinge on the ability of the airbag in the suit so the question mm -hmm. i suppose is is there a technology that might come along with regards to helmets which can blow out some kind of a, a deflecting bag or something the trouble is the energy involved in this yeah you only kind of really understand it when stuff goes wrong when everything's going fine yeah it looks spectacular but it's when it goes wrong you think geez the amount of energy there so and yeah. again to sort of pick up on what you were saying jim this is no slight whatsoever on the helmet manufacturers because they are mm -hmm. producing top top quality safety equipment and many a rider would have passed away in years gone by oh, yeah. so we know that that's all true but there, and there are just certain circumstances that are very hard to legislate your way out of a parallel idea is formula one you made formula one cars so safe that you get guys that can drive wild <laughs> yeah. because they know you're going to walk away from that accident that shunt you're going to walk away from you have legislated as you correctly say legislated a set of rules that makes it so close and so tight that it's the last little bit of who can be on or off throttle wins in it and who's in a tow who isn't in a tow and all of that stuff together then causes these problems again advent of airbags new boots new helmets gloves carbon fiber i think i had like carbon fiber on the back of my knuckles of my gloves that was back in the 90s mm -hmm. airbags hadn't been created yet but if it was I, I guarantee you my dad would have spent the money for one so there's that double-edged sword well if you make it safer you ride crazier there's that inverse in there yeah. And again, if you try and then if you do it, you get unintended consequences. We talk about this all the time. There's unintended consequences. They move to 800 CC Grand Prix bikes in an effort to legitimately slow down. That was their goal because the 990s were at the time out of control. And what happened? You started to break collarbones and everything else because the cornering speeds just shot up because the 800s were so much lighter and quicker and handled better, all that stuff. Yeah. And I think 
I don't know if this is the right place to talk about it, but if, if we're trying to, to do a legislation thing, you look at it, a modern MotoGP bike, I think is upwards of almost 400 pounds. It's heavy. I mean, two stroke 500s were only like 280 pounds yeah. with an incredibly insane amount of power and a power curve that was 7,000 to about 10,000. Okay. Is that a problem? Is the bike the problem? Is this idea of four strokes and the added weight, the added complexity that, that you have to build into that engine, does that cause us a problem? Is having all the extra weight on the motorcycle a problem? I don't know. I know that in 500s, we didn't see this that much. But those bikes were so hard to ride and so difficult that only the elite of the elite could ride them fast. And people were winning races by 45, 50 seconds, doing predominantly that way, because he was far and away beyond what anybody else could do. So that's an option. But again, you if you look at it, you get the law of unintended consequences. If it's lighter, well, then quartering speed is going to go up or something else is going to give in there. So I'm not sure how you get rid of the pack. I mean, I think if you made a modern superbike or a modern MotoGP bike harder to ride and got rid of all the electronic gizmos, I think you would see a separation of the riders because the truly talented and, and everybody who's doing this is has talent, but the, the elite of that talent would be at the front and there'd be gaps in between everything everywhere. And the other thing too is, is that maybe you have to legislate the tires. Maybe the tires need to become less sticky so that we're not cornering as fast and that we can't brake as hard. We can't brake as late. If you think of it that way, well, why doesn't MotoGP ban carbon fiber brakes? Is the racing going to be any less good if we don't have carbon fiber brakes? I don't think so because World Superbike does not have carbon fiber brakes. It's a steel brake with a, a traditional ferrous material pad. Yeah, they're really, really good, but the stopping distance is almost as good as carbon fiber, but not quite. I just don't know how you get there. Yeah. I mean, the little bikes you could start with like engine displacement. I suggested that the Moto 3 bike should be made 500 cc's and be a twin just so that it's a more difficult, harder to ride bike. And plus it's a bike that should, in my mind, stay only in the Grand Prix paddock. It shouldn't be ran in a national series in CEV or the Italian series or in BSB. It should be something that no one can... I don't want to make it unobtainium, but it's something that these teams in MotoGP have and you get on it, you got to learn how to ride that bike. Again, you separate that pack then because as was rightly pointed out many times, Acosta looks really good on a Moto3 bike because he'd been riding a Moto3 bike for so many years. Yeah, I don't have the solution to the problem, but those are things that I think about. But again, I can't foresee everything. So the law of unintended consequences is probably going to take everything that I said and make it moot. Yeah, and let's be honest, any sort of complex problem will not be fixed by a simple solution. A, because it, one solution will never work to cover everything. And B, as you say, Jim, and we do sound like a broken record, but there is always that unintended consequences thing that kind of creeps up and bites you on the arse. Now, they've created, you know, fantastically close, exciting racing. Of that, there is no doubt. And as a show, you know, we wax lyrical week in, week out about Moto3 as a spectacle. It's very much through the slits of your fingers sometimes and most of the time that's okay but when it goes wrong it's it's kind of going wrong big time and it's i mean it was a bit different in the past because you tended to have a much wider variety of quality of equipment so that naturally broke up the field anyway because you'd have somebody tooling around at the back on a five-year-old sort of rs250 let's say whereas the guys at the front were on brand new factory spec machinery so whereas everything's so close in terms of the machinery now which is great but it comes at a cost so this is not an easy problem to solve. And whereas in the old days, as you say, people tended to get 
badly injured and on occasion worse by hitting stuff on the peripheries of the track that stuff's super safe now i mean you don't tend to see that kind of an accident anymore so we've just kind of swung around now to a different sort of set of problems haven't we jim and clearly i think something is going to have to be done about this one and super sport 300 in the world superbike series is a another classic example very much like moto 3 and we've said it before where it's a big accident waiting to happen. So again, we won't talk about this for too long, but unfortunately in the first Supersport 300 race at Portimao this weekend, end of lap one, young Victor Steeman, who was second in the championship and pushing hard because he was still, I think, a couple of points mathematically in the running still to keep the championship running. He went down, got hit by another bike, same as Chrissy Rouse, kind of straight into a, I guess, an induced coma because of the severity of his injuries. And I'm not quite sure when he passed away, but the news came out this morning that he had. So it was either today or yesterday. So again, condolences and sympathies to the family and the team and the fans and everybody else. But it does beg this question again, as we referred earlier to young Dean Vignales and Hugo Milan last year and De Pasquier in Moto3, the small bike category is a problem, both at national level and then at the sort of the European or higher national levels. And then obviously at the world championship level as well. So it's, I think it's there in Moto America too, because they have a twins class. Yes. Yeah. Cheap bike to buy and you've got 48 people were at Barber with it and you've got a, maybe not necessarily at the front, but you have this middle pack that's 10 or 15 riders all in very close proximity. So the yeah. problem is everywhere. Yes. I mean, we've got these series, you know, you've got the Asia Talent Cup, we've got the British Talent Cup, similar thing in America. They're just launching one in South America. I saw a headline the other day. So, which is all great. I mean, it's, it's to get more nationalities, to have more kind of spread of nationalities at the world championship level after a period of time and we've said on this show many times we need some more americans in world championship racing south america is i would say is quite underrepresented uh places like the middle east are very very underrepresented there have been a couple of riders but not many so it's a conundrum uh, it's just very sad when stuff goes wrong i'll be very interested to see what people think if they want to write in and give us their thoughts or let's have some challenging questions on this i mean it's a problem we, we know it is you could either take a callous view and say it's racing this happens nobody's forcing people to do it and that's true yeah. but it would seem to me just to close that there is enough of a problem emerging as a pattern that i think it almost demands a response now from the governing body so it will be interesting to keep track of any rule changes that they might kind of urgently bring in well i say urgent i mean you can't change an engine formula overnight obviously if you were going to go to like as you say jim a 500 twin series or something that would obviously take a year or two to bring in but i mean they have raised the age limits which was one of the things that people felt was a problem and that's only just about to start kicking in so uh but anyway yeah just that's sort of sometimes happens you kind of get a spate of these things that happen in quick succession that's certainly what we saw uh last i think it was last year wasn't it that we had the sort of the two or three riders that passed away after various accidents in fairly quick succession so unfortunately we've had another two so no getting away from it but um Anyway, uh, I suppose we should move on. Uh, on to a slightly happier piece of news, just before we get talking Phillip Island predictions. In MotoGP, Jack Miller got married to his girlfriend. I think they've been together for a fair old while. Ruby Adriana Mao is her name. So 
beautiful name, isn't it? Presumably Ruby Adriana Miller now. <laughs> so assuming she never has to change her initials. So, assuming she takes up the name. So although we're going to come on to this in a minute, we must cover some other news items first. But um, we'll have a little chat about whether Jack Miller's going to award himself the honeymoon present that he probably covets more than anything else, which is a, an Australian Grand Prix win. But hold that thought, Jim. We'll come okay. to that in a moment. Let's just pick up on a couple of other bits and pieces in World Superbike and British Superbike. I don't think there's any Motor American news, but in World Superbike, one of the things that's just emerged, uh, again, people will probably have different opinions on this, but super concessions are coming in. I think they might have almost be live straight away and all of the manufacturers have agreed upon this which is um, somewhat pleasing but essentially as I understand it it's not a rule change so to speak but they are opening up or lifting some of the quite prescriptive restrictions around bike development when it comes to things like frames uh, change in geometry like steering head angles and stuff like that flex which is obviously a key, key thing in all forms of motorcycle racing. And the aim here is to give a bit of a leg up to the likes of HRC or Honda in motorbike, BMW, who year in, year out are struggling to take their stock 1,000cc bikes that you can buy in the dealership. And because the rules in World Superbike have been very strict around what you can and can't do around certain stock parts, I think the argument is that and I'm spitballing a bit here, Jim. You probably know more about this than I do. But let's say take Honda with the CBR 1000 Fireblade. Let's say that bike is developed around a Michelin tyre for the road. When it comes to World Superbike, if they have to run that exact same frame and there's very little they can do to it in terms of flex and geometry and stuff, and then they're having to run it with the Pirelli tyre, they just can't bridge that gap to the Yamaha, the Kawasaki, and particularly this year, the Ducati, to get to the point where they're fighting for podiums. You know, they've done well, and but we see this with BMW as well now i'm slightly curious about the fact and we want to try and get scott smart on who's the kind of technical delegate for the world superbike series i'm kind of curious how it is bmw can suddenly start running the calex swinging arm before super concessions came in because i mean that's a part of the frame as i would class it uh, and certainly helps with rear tire grip in terms of flex and feel and stuff we'll park that particular question for the moment but anyway the the super concessions have come in to help the struggling teams try and bridge that gap up to the three front runners but even saying that i mean kawasaki and jonathan ray in particular i don't want to use the word bleating that's the wrong word but i think they are genuinely starting to shout more loudly about the fact that they were not allowed to run the extra revs that they tried to homologate at the beginning of the season and the authorities said no you're not having them and we've now got a problem where kawasaki is starting to struggle now you might take a reasonable position on this and say well hang on a minute jonathan ray has had well not this year and not last year but prior to that four straight championships on the bounce possibly five i think it was five so he's had a he's pretty for a long a time pretty good time of it when it came to sort of dominance and that was a combination of bike and rider of course and probably more rider than bike it's true but it doesn't take long for things to change and for people to start complaining about it so you know there's a fair bit of interest in kind of technical stuff going on in world superbike at the moment jim so i don't know if you've got anything to to sort of add to that no i do i see where they're going with it because there is a limit to making a pirelli tire work with a stock frame pirellis are a good tire they work in a different way than say a dunlap or a bridgestone mm-hmm. and it requires a pretty significant change in what you're doing having raced on dunlaps and club and then the deal was for the one series you had to run pirellis it was amazing the difference as soon as you swap bikes the same simply swap the rubber between the two of them and the front end went vague 
for me. Like I didn't know where it was. And it comes down to the geometry of the frame that needs to be changed to be able to change the rake and the trail more than what you can with simply a set of offset steering cups. Because there's, a, you know, you can change it so much, but you're still, you can't have the steering stem hitting on the inside of the tube. That's the steering head, right? So yeah. you have to, you got to get the welder out and the grinder and move that around to make it work. And that's where everybody is with this one. Now, swing arms are a part of that too. Shock linkages are a part of it. It's all to play with, but at least they're understanding now, because I think most of Honda's bikes are built to a Bridgestone. Japanese company in Japan, I would venture a guess that they pretty much, that's what they're building around. Mm -hmm. And it's just not the same. And it's good that they're letting them have a little bit more freedom in there to be able to do that. Now, there was a lot of that in the 90s and the heydays there, the Fogarty era, if you will. Bikes were built completely differently then. You, a lot of, you know, gussets, brackets, and all kinds of things were going on. Uh, you know, famously Colin Edwards RC51, the head bolt that held the head <laughs> that was used to hold the motor in the frame, that one bolt mysteriously, whoops, disappears. And suddenly he rips off like seven or eight wins in a row to force the showdown at the last race with Bayless in 2002. Yep. But, you know, there's there's so much there and it's it's not tires are a black magic they are an art form as opposed to a science and that is why things work and they don't work and yeah it comes down to literally how you weld up a frame sometimes yeah because it can be that sensitive to the situation yeah well there's more heat put in this area which caused something else to happen so i'm guessing jim you possibly didn't see any of the world superbike races from portimao i did watch a smidgen of them i did so i did a highlight of all the races okay I'm looking more to see where uh gagne was yeah you know um then there wasn't much coverage in that but yeah it uh the ducati is a missile <laughs> it, you know as much as we talk about leopard being wickedly fast in a straight line <laughs> that ducati is wickedly fast in a straight line too yeah and it, so a lot of the discontentment and disgruntlement it seems to be focused around bautista on the ducati because whilst it's certainly true that some of the other ducatis in the field I have some somewhat of a straight line advantage. I think it's particularly marked in the case of Bautista. Now, I personally, again, interested in your view on this. I think that's as much down to the rider as it is to the bike. I mean, the thing is a missile. But, for example, in race three in Portimao, you had Bautista sort of dicing at the front with Johnny Wren, Toprak, Razgatioglu. And I think in fourth position at this point was Michael Ruben Rinaldi on the other works of Ruben Ducati, so Bautista's teammate. And he just wasn't making the passes on the main straight that Bautista was. So that, to me, suggested that Bautista is doing something with the bike through that fast downhill final turn that just gave him that extra impetus down the straight so to me that's about the rider and we know that he's very light and very small frame but then so is Rinaldi so it's not just down to the bike but clearly that Ducati as you say to use your term is, a, is an absolute missile but you know Yamaha top rats won quite a few races Johnny won some races earlier in the year but I think his falling steadily further and further back as the years gone on and is clearly becoming very frustrated particularly as i said given that they had been turned down for want of a better phrase to run the extra revs that they felt that they could get through the homologation system and they weren't allowed them so that probably will change but i kind of bristle at the idea of success ballast and stuff like this coming in i think no ducati are working to a set of rules they are doing a better job and certainly bautista as a, a world level rider 250 world champion did pretty well in MotoGP. not towards the end so much but he kind of went on to more inferior equipment i think it's true to say he's just 
absolutely acing it at the moment and so it's for the others to catch up or for the rules to allow a little bit more scope which is what this whole super concessions thing is about so for me i think it's probably a good development that's come in again interested to know what people think but i don't know if you've got anything else to say on that matter jim but you know world superbike is good so they want to get the other two or three manufacturers up the front it's very difficult as a sanctioning body to regulate parity when you're trying to use a stock motorcycle. I use stock in quotes. Yeah. But yeah, balance of power is a very difficult thing. I mean, you there was at one point you I know you this has been a controversy in World Superbike since it's been created, honestly. The Ducati's always had an advantage and then it was like, well, okay, we're gonna put air restrictors in the seven fifties because the Ducati's were quick enough anymore and it's been back and forth as to who had it and there was the point where the twins had way too much of an advantage over all the 750s and to prove the point honda built the rc51 built a twin so it's it's always been there it's just now that it's become very competitive and you have let's call it three manufacturers at the front Mm -hmm. and you want to have the other manufacturers at the front because you don't you've worked very hard to get honda back and they're back you obviously don't want them to walk away because that's not going to help you at all. Yeah. So got to do something with World Superbike more so than Motor, much more so than MotoGP. I would argue it is that kind of clinging on semblance of win Sunday, sell Monday. I mean, if anything's going to do that, I think it's probably the Superbike class because that is the bike that you can go out and buy from the dealership. Yeah, the glamour is around MotoGP. Although interesting, we've sort of headed into a period of relative uncompetitiveness at the front of MotoGP because of all of the technology that's involved so we won't get into that too much right now but that's obviously a discussion for the off season um just to finish off a couple of bits of quick news things last week I suggested that Tom Sykes was being linked to a move back to World Superbike with the Pedicini Karasaki team I apologize I had that wrong it was the other privateer Karasaki team Pachetti it's not a done deal might not happen but I think the Suggestions are that he is likely to be back with Pachetti Kawasaki, probably replacing the French rider Lucas Myers. If I was a guessing man, I think that's probably what I would go for. One other piece of Superbike news, switching to the British Superbike paddock now, is that Josh Brooks has today been announced as becoming the teammate to Peter Hickman in the Fayho Racing BMW squad. So he will move from the Paul Bird PBM Ducati squad furthering the rumours that well it's going to be assuming PBM stay in the British Superbike paddock and that's not necessarily in doubt but there have been some suggestions that Paul Bird might move away but Tom Sykes likely to go back to World Superbike Josh Brooks now going across to FHO racing as I say so two slots open in that team if it continues Uh, I think I mentioned last week that there's a a rumour linking Tommy Bridewell to go across there with Danilo Petrucci potentially coming across and taking his ride. So I don't know. We'll see. News will emerge. It's the final race of the BSB season at Brands Hatch this weekend. I think all things being equal, Bradley Ray is very likely to lift the championship. It's obviously going to be somewhat of a muted, uh, sombre affair given the news with Chrissy Rouse. So yeah, an upsetting end to what's been a particularly good season in BSB. Oh, the other thing to mention just on my notes here is that Josh Brooks, you know, I was speculating that he'd be good to get onto that Warhorse Ducati in Moto America gym, but there you go. Yeah, that's sad. I wish he would come. That dream's gone. Maybe yeah. maybe next year or the year yeah. after. <laughs> yeah, so, you keep putting it out there. Eventually it'll happen. Yeah, right? it'll happen. Yeah, if you wish, uh, wish enough, it might happen. So let's move on to Phillip Island then. Let's send on a bright note. 
keep this okay. one as, as short as possible. So Phillip Island, uh, the weather forecast, although we need to be careful of weather forecast because uh, it didn't quite turn out as it was meant to do in Thailand, did it? But the indications are that there's going to be a fair amount of rain around, particularly on Friday and Sunday. But the temperature, I think, is probably the more pertinent prediction on this one in terms of pretty cold temperatures. So that does throw things into a little bit of a difficult thing to plan for the teams bearing in mind they've not been there since now when was the last race in philip island jim was it three years ago 2019 yeah it's the last one so moto three then now we have ethan guevara with a pretty big lead but i'm guessing that he's never raced at philip island before because i think his first season in moto three was 2020 good question i can't answer that one that being the case and i'm fairly sure that's correct that does put him at quite a disadvantage so my speculation on this one would be that the sort of the older wiser heads you know the McPhees the Massiers the Foggiers might have a bit of an advantage this weekend with the weather being sketchy in particular and let's be honest Phillip Island is a a fast old track with some hair raising corners that (laughs) for the uninitiated probably take a bit of working up to and if it's cold and if it's wet I don't know there's jeopardy involved isn't there so Mm. have you got any sort of predictions Jim in terms of Moto3? It's a it's a toss-up. I mean, I think you could put these guys in any order. My gut says Fazia, hmm. followed by Sasaki, followed by Amasia, an Anchu, Guevara, maybe. Hmm. <laughs> you know, you could throw these guys in, in really in any order. I don't think Garcia has his head right to put a challenge against Guevara. Other than that, I mean it, it anything can happen. It's crazy on the island. It's crazy in Moto 3. Uh, you know, I would think Kelso would have a good knowledge of a wet Phillip Island if necessary, right? I, mm. If it starts bucketing down and they're racing, maybe Kelso knows something that they don't know about <laughs> that track, right? Mm, yeah. And uh, he'll be the surprise of the weekend, that kind of thing. I think Sasaki is probably a good shout. Yeah, um, I have yeah. thoughts about it. With your sort of better knowledge of mine in terms of bikes and suitability to certain tracks, are you thinking this is going to be more Honda or KTM territory? The KTM is good at accelerating and good on braking, and then it turns well. The Honda is faster and accelerates harder, but it can't do the quick turns. And you really have the long winding turn at the last end of it, and it's fairly sweepy in its orientation. There's not a hard breaking point stop and go again, mm-hmm. except for maybe over the top of Luki Heights. So I think it favors the Honda a little bit, but the KTM is an extremely capable bike at really any circuit. They've, they've built a very good Moto3 machine. And on a Moto3 bike, that long, fast front straight is probably going to favour, you would think, the Leopard Honda, if not any of the others, because of whatever magic it is they're able to conjure inside that uh, engine or the ECU or whatever. So, okay. So so we're saying possibly Sasaki, Foggia. I I think Masia might have a good race. I think probably probably experience is going to count at this one in the Moto3 class. Okay. So we'll be getting together... To see how wrong we are? Well, exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> Moto2. Now, this is a two-horse race in terms of the championship. So we've yes. got Agura. Are, are they separated by one and a half points or two points? One and a half points yeah. between a Fernandez and Agura. So, I mean, obviously, there's other people that are going to come into the fray. But I think this is all about Fernandez and Agura, isn't it? So mm-hmm. do you see either one of those coming out on top again this weekend, given the slightly conditions? No, I don't. My pick is Arbolino. I totally agree. 
I don't know why. I just feel like Arbolino is prime for having a win here. He's in the zone at the minute as well, isn't he? Yeah. He's been building and building and building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then it comes down to, I'm going to throw a Chantra out there, thinking he's been to Phillip Island. But Chantra always seems to be really good on the fast tracks. And this is a fast track. Mm. From there, it's like, where does Augusto Fernandez fit in this mix? I see him at the podium or right there. And then Ayagura is right there. The two of them are not going to be far apart from each other. Let's put it that way, in my opinion. Put them in any order that you want. But I think Arbolino is going to be gone. I just feel like he's just going to be gone. I don't can't explain it. Can't put anything on it other than I just got this feeling that Armelino is just due for a cracking ride. Yeah, well, I think you're right. Fernandez is quite a seasoned campaigner in Moto2, isn't he? Whereas Aguirre, relatively speaking, is much more inexperienced. But what sort of fascinates me when we get to this sort of business end of a championship like this is with one and a half points between them, it becomes so much about mind management. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? You know, and, and managing a difficult situation, particularly in what are likely to be quite sketchy conditions as well. So, I mean, I don't have an opinion. I certainly don't have first-hand knowledge of Agura versus Fernandez relative to each other in terms of psychologically how they'll cope with that pressure. Because it really is at the stage of three races to go, where if you make a mistake, it could be the difference between winning and losing the championship so it's an immensely stressful situation for them to go into which is great for us as spectators but must be hideous for them as competitors yep i agree i'm not sure um i will put out there that i think canet will be in the mix with arbolino at the front except for canet's gonna fall Mm -hmm. and then that's where arbolino has this big gap on everybody if i think about it as far as the weight of the pressure of the championship i think there's no pressure on agura he knows he's going to be there next year. So win, lose, or draw, he's in the same place. Fernandez, I think, has more pressure because he knows he's going to MotoGP. And I think he wants to go to MotoGP as the reigning Moto2 world champion. Good point. We will see on Sunday. Oh, how about MotoGP now? For if let's... Yeah, well, uh, I mean, talking about things that are finely balanced, I mean, again... Now, the one thing I will just quickly say, Jim, is that I don't think, well, of the three races that are left to go, this is a must, must win for Fabio, because I think Malaysia is going to be a big challenge, because it's more of a Ducati track, and Valencia is definitely a Ducati track, if you look at recent history, and Phillip Island, yes, it has a long straight, but it doesn't have a long straight that starts off with a slow corner, Mm -hmm. so the... The sort of the perceived disadvantage of the Yamaha engine, I think, is less pronounced at Phillip Island than Sepang, for example, where you've got long straights which have slow corners preceding them. So I think Fabio has to win this one. And just, I don't know if you've picked up on this. And I, again, I sort of, I don't really follow Fabio Quattararo on social media, but peripherally sort of picked up a few people saying that he shut down his Instagram account following the Thailand weekend. So he's had nothing going on on social media, whereas he's one of the most active people on the various social media platforms. So Mm. either that says he's under massive pressure and he's disappeared into a hole, which I don't believe. I think he's just got his game face on and he's just concentrating on the job at hand. So I think he's going to turn up and be ready for action. But I don't know. I mean, yeah, off you go. It's the weather. It's the weather. Yeah. If it's raining, I don't see Quattararo at the front. Sorry. Previous experience dictates that he's not going to be there. Mm. If you're going to press me, I'm going to take Miller to win. I just think Jack's just relaxed. He's chilled. He's got it now. And even if it becomes a, an iffy, sketchy condition, Miller, right? I think he wins or crashes, Jim. Oh, of course. It's it's win or bin. Mm. Totally. The question is what happens in between. If 
it's a switch bikes race. Would you count Mark Marquez? <laughs> I, <knew> <laughs> I knew saying, the 93 was coming. <laughs> it's just, he seems to have this impeccable knack of figuring out exactly when to switch. But if it happens very late, let's say it's dry and it starts spitting with, say, eight to go. Would you not put money on Bender for just going for it on slicks? You know, I mean, it, there's so many variables in this one that I don't know what to do where everybody would fit. I mean, if it's dry, I could see Quattro on the podium somewhere. Yeah, I could see Ben Yaya being second to Miller. Uh, I could see Quattro being in between the two of them for the podium. I, If it's dry, I think we all know that Marquez's Honda is not good enough, so... He's fourth, potentially. It can go so many ways, and I'm so interested to watch this one just because it's going to go in so many different directions. I just think, from my personal perspective, it's impossible and pointless trying to predict a top three on this one, particularly with the weather forecast. I mean, I think perhaps slightly unfortunately, MotoGP for me at this point in time is almost where if it's a dry race and it's a warm or hot race, you kind of know a bit what the likely top six is looking like. But there's nothing like rain or sketchy conditions of one sort or another to level out the playing field and bring other people into the mix. And if the weather is like we think it's going to be, then I think anybody virtually could win it this weekend. You know, you could even bring a Rins or a well, maybe Olivera, not Olivera. has been a bit of a rainmeister. Rain you poss- you couldn't possibly rule him out if it's no. damp. I mean, cold is another question, isn't it? Because that has such an impact on the tire performance, but. I'm still kind of with you. I think if things are reasonably stable, I think Jack is probably just in the headspace at the moment where, and he, you know, he knows where he is next year. He doesn't have too much kind of loyalty to Ducati. I mean, I, would he move over from the win to let Banyaya through? Mm-mm, I don't think so. Not in his home country. No, I just don't think he would. Malaysia, yes. Valencia, yes. Australia, no. He's still in the championship. I mean, he's mathematically still very much in in play for the championship at 40 points down. So, because if the weather forecast is to be believed, it doesn't take too much of a stretch for Fabio to finish in 15th and for Banyard to throw it up the road, you know. So, I mean, anything can happen. We shall see, Jim, uh, next week. We'll get together on Tuesday, Wednesday, I guess, as we normally do, and chew the fat and see what what happens. happens. (laughs) Uh, We'll have a bit of BSB to talk about, although I think I know what's going to happen in BSB. I'm not sure if I'm going to go to Brands or not. I'm kind of a little bit put off from going for the reasons that we've already discussed. And I've got a couple of family things to do on Saturday. So I'll play that one by ear. I think it might be a get up early and watch Phillip Island as a preference this time around. So that's it, people. I think, Jim, unless you've got any other pills of wisdom to, no, to spread. The wisdom I have is ride safe, people. Yeah. Okay. We will look forward to talking to you next week, everybody. And cheers for now. Bye.